As we look back to the end of the Second World War, uh, which ended 75 years ago, one of the narratives that is most commonly heard from that long and terrible conflict uh, is the narrative surrounding the treatment of allied POWs at the hands of the Japanese. And uh, there are many, many stories that emerge from that narrative of absolutely horrific, brutal treatment in so many different ways. The author of a book called Prisoners of the Empire seeks to give us a, a more accurate and nuanced understanding of the experience of allied POWs at the hands of the Japanese. Uh, Sarah Kovner is a senior research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies housed at Columbia University. And in her new book, Prisoners of the Empire, Inside Japanese POW Camps, uh, Sarah Kovner seeks to help us understand just what is the true story there. And certainly there were uh, all kinds of instances of of brutal treatment of prisoners. Uh, but there is more to the story than that. And uh, she wants us to understand a fuller, more complete picture. And also, uh, in terms of that brutality, that brutal treatment that uh, undeniably occurred in many instances, she wants us to understand the reasons why. Uh, I really appreciated the, uh, the, the uh, careful research which she has done and uh, the care with which she has written this important book, uh, which is published by Harvard University Press, again titled Prisoners of the Empire, Inside Japanese POW Camps. Sarah Kovner, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can I ask if anything in particular prompted you to want to explore this topic in this way? I mean, did anything in particular lead you to think that uh, most of us in, in America were operating uh, with a rather incomplete understanding of this story? So the way that I started doing this research is that I was doing work for my first book in the archives of the International Committee for the Red Cross in Geneva, and I came across these reports that delegates were required to write on the camps that they had visited. And as you say, I was, I was familiar with this American experience and um, its horrors, but I wanted to understand the Japanese view and how they told this history. Um, so in Japan, as you may or may not know, the World War II is often told in terms of local history or victimhood. And um, I thought that I wanted to know more, just because I wasn't familiar with how uh, the Japanese, the other side, was telling the story. So you ended up, I think, probably discovering things you were not expecting to discover. And I, I just think it's important to know that, because I think sometimes when books that, in a sense, reshape our story are written... It's because somebody sort of decides at the outset what the story, in fact, is supposed to be or, or in fact, is. And it sounds like that's not the case here. I mean, you, were, you, you began this quest, this research, uh, with honest curiosity about what the story was. Uh, is that fair to say? Absolutely. Um, you know, and as you said at the beginning, everyone knows how much allied POWs suffered at the hands of the Japanese. I wanted to know why, and I, re I uh, reveal why they were neglected and abused. 
Right. And then, of course, beyond that, the fact that there is a wide range of experience uh, and and you also want to explore the reasons why for, for, for that as well. I wonder, b- before we start digging into some of the specifics of this story, uh, if you could talk about uh, what I am guessing was uh, your your fear of perhaps writing a book that might be seen by some as being dismissive of the suffering that was, in fact, of course, experienced by by many Allied soldiers, or that someone might perhaps misunderstand what you were doing in, as, as an effort to sort of minimize that uh, or to excuse that treatment. It's, I mean, there's any number of ways in which a book like this could be uh, carelessly or inadvertently misunderstood. Can you just talk for a moment about any hesitancy that you had uh, about about writing this book or telling this story in this way or any particular concerns you had about uh, not wanting to be misunderstood? Of course. I mean, what I try and do in my book is to emphasize that there's a range of experiences and to emphasize that uh, the experience of allied POWs who suffered in the Philippines or who worked on the Burma-Thai Railway had just... Uh, for me, sometimes, unima- even though I've done all the research, unimaginably bad, poor experiences. And so as a historian, what I try and do is stick as close as I can to the archival record. And additionally, I was lucky enough to talk to some allied um, POWs, and allied, of course, refers to not just Americans, but Australians and uh, Dutch and um, British POWs, but also to talk to Japanese guards and to Korean guards, because... Um, that many of the guards actually weren't Japanese, they were Korean or Taiwanese. Hmm. Yeah, that's one of the points that you make, that uh, for all that has been written or depicted uh, about this story of Allied uh, POWs during the Second World War, that many of those accounts uh, do not include any word whatsoever from the Japanese themselves. And so that is an omission that you are seeking to rectify here. Uh, when it came to exploring uh, official documentation and archives and so on, uh, what were the most valuable resources to which you turned in doing your research? So, you know, one of the things that anybody studying Japan who does research in Japan learns is that the Japanese burnt the documents at the end of the Second World War, and that when we hear accounts of people who visited Tokyo in August, our servicemen, and they say, oh, there are these clouds of smoke that we could see. But one of the things, um, they didn't actually burn everything. And one of the things that wasn't burnt were the papers of the prisoner of war um, information agent, uh, agency and the prisoner of war management office, which are the people who are actually concerned with um, with with writing down what happened to POWs or writing reports. So I could look at that, um, which I was fortunate to do. And I also was able to look at Japanese military documents. Um, In addition to that, important documents for me were the papers of the International Committee of the Red Cross, where they they wrote these reports that I referred to earlier. And also uh, papers, diaries were important to me because because obviously they were written at the time. And um, so at the the Army War College, uh, there are some diaries kept, and I found similar diaries in Australia and um, in the U.K., 
But, you know, maybe the most interesting document that, for me, that I found was a series of magazines that allied POWs, British men, really, primarily put out in POW camps in Korea, where they put out these, um, in some years, had more than others, but these were magazines, uh, journals that they were writing um, to write about what they had experienced. And they're, Ill- they're in full color, and luckily we're able to see them now. There's some of the pictures from it in my book. Interesting. One of the things you, you mention in terms of why the, the most commonly understood narrative exists of, of, in a sense, unabated, terrible suffering and brutal treatment across the board of allied POWs at the hands of the Japanese, one of the reasons that narrative exists as it does and has taken hold in our collective memory is because... Uh, in many, many cases, allied PO, or American, at least, POWs, once they were released, assuming that they survived imprisonment, um, submitted to structured interviews and questionnaires uh, that they were required to complete, and that those interviews and questionnaires were in no way impartial or objective. And just by kind of the shaping of the questions... Uh, a certain kind of narrative about this experience was 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 made all but but inescapable. Uh, can you just say, say a word about that? And if any of that kind of material was still uh, valuable to you, even if you regard it as, in some respects at least, suspect. Well, I, that's a good question. And just to add to what you said, they do that, that we see these kinds of structured interviews. It's not just American. We see them in Australia and in Britain. And I think an example of um, what you're talking about is they say is a question that appeared in many of these interviews is, did you try to escape? Um, because this is something that uh, servicemen were asked to do, right? But it was, in reality, very difficult to escape from a camp in Japan or in Singapore in a way that it you know, it's always, of course, hard to escape, but people who were imprisoned in Asia, I think, face special challenges. Um, you know, as a historian, what, what I try to do is to look at a number of different archival sources in order to understand what's going on and to combine that with, um, you know, talking to people and listening to recorded interviews held at the Library of Congress for interest, for instance. So I read those documents, what we call it in history is reading against the grain, right? And to even though I'm understanding that these are structured interviews, you can still find out a lot of really interesting things by reading them. Hmm. Uh, a last preliminary question. Uh, you mentioned the fact that you had the, the privilege of speaking with uh, a number of people who were direct participants in this, including uh, some POWs. Uh, I wonder what it was like for you to sit across from somebody, uh, or even if you were speaking over the phone in whatever format these, these interviews uh, occurred, what that experience was like for you uh, to, in effect, take them back to, uh, to a, a really terrible chapter in their own lives? And, and what, what, did it seem to, what sort of experience did it seem to be for them uh, to be reliving these experiences within this kind of context of researching the story uh, in a fairly objective manner. So it's intimidating because even though I've been, and also sort of strange, because I had been reading for so long about the history that these um, people had experienced. And so when you've 
so I had read a lot, but that was only what the documents presented. And as you've said, you, you said earlier, these structured, they're kind of told in a structured way. But people's individual experience is often quite different from what the, I mean, perhaps always different from what the documents say. And, um, you know, I went, I've, I've been to places like, for example, I went to a um, reunion of allied POWs. And I mean, it, and I'm looking at somebody and they've experienced this history that uh, I've only read about. It's, it's really, um, it can, it's illuminating. But also I think, of course, and especially on the 75th anniversary, we're, you know, many of these people had such tremendous lives and there just aren't many of them left to tell us the story. So I felt very lucky to hear their words. We're speaking with Sarah Kovner and we are talking about her new book, Prisoners of the Empire, Inside Japanese POW Camps. In this book, Sarah Kovner seeks to rectify some misunderstandings uh, she believes that, that we as Americans tend to have about the experience of POWs uh, in, in Japanese war camps and uh, internment camps during the Second World War. And uh, while the book by no means is, seeks to deny the terrible suffering uh, that many uh, POWs experienced, uh, she seeks to uh, describe the experience more comprehensively and in a sense more fairly and accurately in terms of, of what occurred and, and why it occurred. One of the, I think, most important things that you do in your book uh, occurs in Chapter 1 in which you give us some historical context uh, in terms of the nation of Japan and the tremendous transformation which it underwent in, in the late 19th into the early 20th century, a uh, transformation that at certain points was, was wrenching and difficult. And, uh, well, first of all, tell us why you deemed it important to take this kind of time with this particular matter? What, what is the point of spending this much time uh, with Japanese history ahead of the Second World War? So I, I think, you know, if we want to understand why what happened, you have to understand what happened before it, before your story, right, to see, because change, certain changes occur in history that lead up to um, the historical period that you're talking about. And so what you're referring to, I think, is how during the early part of the 20th century, Japan sought to follow international law to demonstrate the extent to which they were a civilized and cultured country, right? Um, and we see this particularly during the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1905 and World War One, where the Japanese actually were famous for how well they held Russian prisoners. And um, that you see all of these photographs. And, I mean, they're staged, right, but um, uh, prisoners playing tennis or um, things like this. But in general, the records demonstrate that um, certainly the Russian POWs were treated far better than the Japanese POWs were. And there are reports from outside observers who um, describe how well they were treated. But by the 1930s, which is closer to the period that my book covers, right, Japan has announced its intention of leaving the League of Nations um, and a faction of majors and colonels in um, Japanese Imperial Army gain power and are seeking to wage aggressive war. Tell us uh, about two particular matters that I think are also significant that are often very much overlooked. 
One of them, the dramatic economic downturn, which Japan experienced uh, in a time period roughly coinciding with our own Great Depression, and really a depression that, that afflicted so much of the world, but, but in, in, in very serious uh, fashion in Japan. And then also the dramatic shift in Japan's government uh, uh, in, the, in the early 1930s. I think this is something that is very important and yet all but unknown to, to the typical American, but it is so important for us understanding how Japan, in a sense, conducted itself and its affairs during the Second World War. Tell us a bit about both of these matters. So after the First World War, right, where Japan is holding the, these prisoners, they're actually um, prisoners from, from China who Japan is holding. Uh, Japan, um, you know, the, the, the next sort of thing that happens is we start to see Japan being involved abroad in uh, this was something called the Siberian Intervention in 1918, where the Japanese Imperial Army is going in to rescue Austro-Hungarian uh, POWs, right? And the kind of fighting that, that this is a very unpopular war in Japan domestically, and this is where we see something called the Rice Riots, um, which I think is what you're talking about. There's not enough to eat, it's an expensive war, and it's extremely unpopular. Meanwhile, these Japanese soldiers who are fighting abroad are, are really experiencing a new kind of warfare, guerrilla warfare, which isn't this kind of war that um, was familiar or had been talked about in the military academies. And as a consequence of this new way of fighting, um, the Japanese Imperial Army started to um, train its soldiers differently, right, and to increasingly, um, it, it's at this point, really, that the idea of being taken prisoner was no longer an honorable thing to do. And um, so that, that's why this is important. Um, in terms of the 1930s, which is what you're talking about, right, this is an unstable, um, this is really an unstable period for Japanese government. There are many different um, prime ministers. And this, this kind of follows up on what I was saying earlier about how um, there are these increasing insurrections in, um, or of majors and colonels in China, and also some of them reach, um, some of them are happening in Tokyo. Hmm. Uh, as you give us this historical context, it's interesting to, to get some history of the so-called Geneva Agreement, I think the first of which was drawn up back in 1863. And you point out that uh, this was an agreement uh, in terms of how war should be conducted and how prisoners of war should be treated. Uh, this was something that was uh, deemed applicable only to wars between so-called civilized countries, uh, which, of course, in a sense, casts a real shadow over, over something that we otherwise tend to think of in, in very glowing terms. But beyond that, you tell us that uh, when that first Geneva Agreement was, was forged in uh, 1863, Japan was not even invited to be a participant, which gives us some sense of the way in which Japan at that point in time uh, was, was viewed. We fast forward to 1934 and to a Geneva Convention, which took place in Tokyo, of all places. Um, explain what transpired at that event in 1934 and how Japan uh, regarded uh, what, what uh, went on at that Geneva Convention. 
1934, uh, delegates met um, from all over the world, Red Cross delegates, including Japan, um, the Japanese delegates, they, the Tokyo, uh, to discuss whether or not civilians should also be covered by the Geneva Conventions. Um, this, I should be giving away the story, this is, was not successful. But yet, in the middle of the 1930s, where Japan had, um, you know, really was fighting this, this kind of undeclared war in China, there are people, um, there are all these foreign delegates arriving in Tokyo, they're military officers, just to paint a kind of picture, at a reception, and um, then there are Americans and Europeans all meeting to discuss the question of whether civilians should be covered by these Geneva Conventions. So if I remember correctly, Japan ends up signing this but not ratifying it. Is that right? Uh, that's a different one. And they sign, oh. but they, yeah, they, and the, it, they don't ratify it, right? And, um, yeah. On the other hand, what's kind of interesting is that you, you tell us that one of the ways in which one of the gestures that Japan undertook to, in a sense, be part of the, the world community, as it were, was when Japan, with great fanfare, decided to join the Red Cross. And at least for a time, was one of the sort of shining examples of of the Red Cross with one of its largest chapters. Uh, Help us understand when this was and how we can fold this into how this story ultimately kind of ends. So this is the time that you were talking about early in the late and starting in the late 19th centuries, right? So as you mentioned, Japan wasn't a part of the original um, Geneva Conventions, but they, in order to do that, you had to join the Red Cross. And so Japan, who's seeking at this point to be a part of this like larger world community, was interested in joining the Red Cross. And um, at certain points, the Jap- there are more Japanese members than any other place. Um, because the Red Cross, right, they have different objectives. Um, you know, they're, they're fighting against um, natural disasters, and they are also fighting, they're also representing the rights of international POWs, right? They don't do that anymore, but this is the case that, of the early um, 20th century, right? So, you know, early on, the Japanese are interested in being a part of this world order and showing off how civilized they were. Um, but this, these, the people who are holding these ideals and are trying to do this, the diplomats, um, they eventually become less successful as the military officers rise in power by the 1930s. Right. And what we're seeing in this period is what you describe as a shift from internationalism to imperialism. And, -hmm. of course, this is really crucial in terms of the Japanese collective mindset as World War II begins. Right. I mean, you know, Japanese imperialism, of course, starts earlier with um, Japan taking um, Korea as a protectorate in 1905, and it becomes a colony in 1910. Uh, Taiwan's already a colony at that point, but um, Japan um, tries to, and in this way, right, they are following the lead of other imperial, they think at least they're following the lead of other imperial nations around the world. But uh, the Japanese are seeking more and more um, territories to end as part of a larger strategy, um, Japanese military, that is. And uh, so they go on with doing this. And conditions grow stricter in places like what we know, what's now uh, Korea, right, um, as the Japanese um, increasingly uh, crack down or make conditions harsher for the people living there. We're speaking with Sarah Kovner, and we're talking about her newest book, which is titled 
Prisoners of the Empire, Inside Japanese POW Camps. So we uh, have reached the Second World War chronologically. Right. Uh, help us understand what was the mindset of Japan. Uh, and maybe it's a complicated answer in terms of sort of what the feelings of the general, general populace were versus the feelings of, of Japan's leaders, were they in the government or, or, or in the military. But in terms of, of w- what the objective was and, and kind of the mindset and particularly the emotional mindset uh, of, the, of, the, of the Japanese, I mean, how did they view themselves in the world order and to what extent was fear of the outside world a part of that mindset at this point in time? So I think it's hard, as you said, to talk about Japanese um, men and women and children is like kind of one group of people and different people experienced different um, and thought different things, right? Uh, so that, but if we talk about the um, leaders of the Imperial Army and the Imperial Navy and what they are trying to do, uh, as you probably know, they're trying to win the war quickly um, because they don't have the logistics to back up a longer fight, right? Um, and um, in terms of people on the ground, I mean, I think that people living in different places and all through Japan and really, so Korea, I, we were talking about imperialism early and Korea is part of Japan now at this point, right? So when we talk about Japan, we're also talking about Japanese settlers and uh, Koreans living in Korea or in Taiwan or um, in Manchuria, which is known as uh, Manchukuo at this time, right? And so like anywhere else, right? There are people who are pro-war, who are fighting for this. There are people who are just trying to eat. There are people who are conscripted into the military. Um, So lots of different people feeling lots of different things, I think. So as we begin in exploring this narrative of, of Japan taking allied prisoners and their treatment of them, uh, one of the most important points that your book makes is how rapidly Japan took as prisoners uh, allied servicemen and many civilians as well in much larger numbers than they would have ever imagined possible. Uh, give our listeners some sense of the scale that we are talking about in terms of in the very first months of the Second World War, of just how many prisoners we are talking about and, and why it was such a surprise to the Japanese. So at the beginning of the second, so the Japanese, right, they never planned, this is not, it seems strange to us now, but they never planned to take so many men prisoner, right? Um, so their goal, as we talked about a bit earlier, was to, to win the war. Um, but probably the Japanese army took, empire took prisoner more than 140,000 allied servicemen and 130,000 civilians from a dozen different countries. And this doesn't count all of the, uh, the Asian nationals who are involved in this, who, who are on the ground there, right? And the Japanese military was never prepared for prisoners. So the commanders on the ground are all of a sudden have all these men captive, and they are struggling to figure out what to do with them. And it's a complex problem, because not only uh, do they have all these people on the ground in Singapore, right, first, um, but they have to figure out how to feed them, how to house them, where they're supposed to go. I want to just read a, a portion of this chapter in which you you focus on on Singapore. Uh, you write, 
There was no such thing as a typical captivity experience in the Pacific War. The lack of planning for either POWs or civilian internees, the protracted nature of the conflict, and the changing fortunes of Japanese forces created a vortex that sent captives in highly unpredictable and dramatically different directions. But the largest proportion of POWs entered this maelstrom at one particular place and time, the surrender of Singapore in February of 1942, when the world's largest empire began to implode. The fall of Singapore was a shattering blow from which British prestige never recovered. Humiliation came not just from the surrender of more than 100,000 British soldiers, many of whom had never fired a shot. It was what the defeat revealed about the decadence of colonial society and the incompetence of its leadership. This is a chapter of the Second World War that I think a lot of Americans are not particularly uh, acquainted with. But when we start hearing about more than 100,000 British soldiers surrendering, in a sense, in one fell swoop, uh, that gives us some sense of how Japan, in a sense, was, was overwhelmed with this influx of prisoners. And they just didn't see this. British collapse coming. Can you just say a word about the circumstances under which this occurred? Well, so ironically, the British themselves predicted how they would collapse, right? Um, But they just chose not to focus their resources on defending Singapore. Um, I think for Americans, something that I always emphasize in my classes and we don't think about a lot, because quite rightly, we focus on our experience in Hawaii. Um, Around that time, the Japanese are also invading Singapore, right? And so these are things that are, if you look at the map from Japan, they're happening at the same time, even though uh, we as Americans, it's not something we most often think about. Um, And so the Japanese are coming down um, into Singapore. And um, as you said, they're all of a sudden confronted with all of these POWs. And um, the reasons that, the reason I talk about Singapore in my book and also the Philippines is so when they have all these people, they're not sure where to put them. And eventually Japanese leaders say, well, we should use them for labor. But these people don't spend the whole war in Singapore. They move on to uh, camps in Japan, camps in Korea, camps in other places. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about uh, some of the specific matters that uh, are involved in this uh, this mistreatment, and uh, and some of the ways in which you want us to understand this better. First of all, one of the uh, one of the explanations that is often given for those instances in which prisoners of war were treated very cruelly was uh, something that uh, is known as the Bushido Code kind of a military code once upon a time associated with the samurai and then revived, uh, but I think changed a bit uh, in, in the 20th century. This is sometimes offered as an explanation of what is, is going on. Uh, explain to our listeners your understanding of this Bushido code and uh, the ways in which it explains maybe some of this experience, but by no means all of it. So, um, Bushido Code, right, that's the way of the samurai, which um, certainly we're, we, we may have heard about in the U.S. And um, I think that this is this way of the warrior, and it's true that this is an ideology 
that existed in Japan. Um, but I think that maybe one way of understanding it is this was a set of ideas that the Japanese Imperial Army wanted to inculcate among um, its troops, right? Um, they wanted to encourage to convince their servicemen, their soldiers, to uh, be brave, to sur- to sur- to um, fight, uh, go on in- to fight with courage, right? Um, but when and also they didn't want them ever to surrender. But uh, one thing that I think is telling is the Japanese Imperial Army had to um, actually. It's really a way of setting up a norm, right? So that the Japanese had this no, no surrender policy. Um, they tried to, they're trying to establish a norm and influence behavior, but it ends up having unintended consequences, such as leading officers and guards to feel contempt for the POWs and they captured and detained. But also, the Japanese Imperial Army uh, has to end up um, having punishments for uh, for its soldiers who don't um, who don't follow these this kind of ethos. So I, I guess I think it's a norm because, um, you know, they, you don't need to have punishments if it's something that people really believe. Mm, interesting. You tell us that uh, when it comes to the, the poor way in which many Allied prisoners were treated, that at least to some extent, some of those practices, including face slapping and forced marches and so on, that that was actually something that the Imperial Japanese Army uh, would utilize in treating its very own soldiers. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, first I really want to emphasize that face slapping, you know, when, you, when we say it in English, it doesn't sound that bad, but it's really, it's like almost breaking somebody's nose. It's extremely painful. Um, but I think that, so we have to think, when we think about the Japanese Imperial Army and the way that they treated their own soldiers, I think it would surprise a lot of us. Um, you know, that physical violence was used to keep men in, um, in you know, to make sure they were following regulations, uh, and that uh, they didn't have much to eat and were required to walk long distances. And, of course, these are things that happen to POWs, and they're awful. But the Japanese Imperial army is making its soldiers do the same thing, right? So that they were given a little bit of rice, um, maybe with bugs in it, and they were given uh, some miso soup or soup without miso, right? And this is what they're feeding to the um, to the POWs. So the, the conditions are in many cases equal, but that doesn't make them any better. Hmm. But one of the points that your book makes is that while there are these instances of horrific treatment of Allied prisoners, that by no means is this always the case, that in fact conditions varied widely from camp to camp, and a big part of the reason for that is because there was not one clear, well-organized prisoner uh, camp system. It was something that, it, from the sounds of it, just kind of popped up uh, in, in, in rather haphazard fashion, which uh, in some ways is kind of contra- uh, contrary to uh, the way we would imagine uh, the, the Japanese military functioning. I mean, in some ways, they tended to be in, incredibly uh, efficient and proficient, but not when it came to this. Tell us more about just how disorganized the whole system of, of prison camps uh, was for the, the, the Japanese and uh, and just how wide a variation of treatment we are talking about. So um, you're exactly right. 
the, there's tremendous variation over time and space. And the reason is that the agency that was ostensibly in control of these camps, really, they had no control. They were able to set policies, um, but they couldn't make anybody follow them. The people who were actually running the camps are the local area commanders. So a local area commander, um, they might just, you know, and if you're fighting a war, your local area commander, the POW camp is not your um, main goal, right? Your main goal is capturing territory or doing what your commander says. The Prisoner of War Information Agency and the Prisoner of War Management Office, who are these agencies, they're, they're not... There are not strict lines of authority from them to the commanders. They're sort of floating in the middle of um, an organization chart. Uh, And that really stands in contrast to other militaries, such as the the German army or other places. And the reason for it is they really weren't organized and prepared, which we've talked about earlier. In terms of the variation among and between camps, um, you know, when I think about it, there's not really a typical experience. We know about the bad places, and they were awful, right? But life in some camps in Japan and in what's now South Korea were better, right? For example, in Keijo, which is now Seoul, officers farm vegetables and animals. Um, they didn't have to work. Uh, the commanders actually actively trying to find work for prisoners of war. And even in one allied POW in the records I was reading in Britain, he says that uh, he really lays the primary responsibility with the system rather than with the individual. Hmm. And, yeah. You also make an interesting point that I think is worth uh, exploring, and that is, uh, you say, when Japanese bureaucrats made decisions that spelled disaster for POWs, they were often responding to the overwhelming challenges of the war. What kind of challenges are you talking about there? What kind of overwhelming challenges of the war would lead bureaucrats to make certain decisions that would affect uh, the lives and well-being of, of, of POWs uh, so dramatically and seriously? Um, so I'm not sure about the context of from where that came, but uh, certainly bureaucrats, uh, you know, when you're thinking about the lives of people in Japan, um, they also are, they're often, um, they don't have very good conditions in general. And that, so for example, take bureaucrats in the prisoner of war information agency that we were talking about earlier. Um, Many of these people are, so I'm thinking about the person, the director, the last director of it, Tamara Hiroshi, right? He is, in several instances, actually trying to get better policies, um, things that would protect POWs, but he's also rubbing elbows against the more powerful men in the Japanese bureaucracy, people in the Military Affairs Bureau, right? Like trying to, who don't want POWs to have better conditions, who want other things to happen. He's trying to, like, get an audience with his superior. Um, so it's a little bit like the inanities of bureaucracy, which is, is so troubling, to, I think, to us, I think, as we think about the experiences that people had. Um, but it's a very real explanation for why men had to suffer the way that they did. Mm. And I hasten to add that uh, an important point your book makes is that there was no official policy in Japan uh, to abuse POWs, that this was something that occurred in a sense at the more local level, but it was not a top-down policy. That if, In fact, Japan's official policy was to abide uh, by the Geneva uh, Conventions, but you say that uh, they agreed only to do this 
by mutatis mutandis, as Japanese laws and local circumstances allow. And I suppose that is quite a convenient escape valve in some respects. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an escape valve, right? That lets them to do whatever they want according to the law. Um, and uh, that, that's what uh, the, the dip, diplo- diplomacy is, is that, as, as you mentioned already. You know, I think that um, to these people, and some of the people who are working um, specifically with POWs or diplomats, they have experience abroad, right? And um, they're aware of the, con- the conventions, the Geneva Conventions, the ones that Japan has ratified, right? And they know how prisoners are supposed to be treated. And these are the people who are, don't mention the ICRC earlier, the Red Cross. The ICRC delegates are visiting some of these camps. They are not able to write um, uncensored reports. So the reports that we have, uh, I don't think, again, there are these kinds of things that you have to read against the grain. Um, but they are these, that the, in the Prisoner of War Management Office, they are arranging the trips for ICRC delegates to come and visit camps. Um, yeah. I want to make sure that our listeners understand that your book is not only about helping us understand the mindset of the Japanese and why certain things were done to prisoners, uh, but your book also does seek to help us understand what prisoners of war themselves experienced, and in particular, uh, some of what they experienced that would be, in a sense, uh, beyond the obvious or beyond what we, we often uh, hear about in terms of, of, of such uh, experiences. I, I really appreciated uh, some of what you explored here, uh, particularly uh, how deeply disturbing the experience of, of, of prisoners of war could be, particularly as you uh, explore at one point, when it came to something like masculinity and the fact that uh, many soldiers, whatever it meant for them, male soldiers to be masculine, would be very much beaten down and and uh, and and undermined by some of what they had to experience uh, as prisoners of war. Can you just uh, say a word about uh, this really intriguing subject and what it was like for you to explore it? So this is a really interesting topic to me, so I thank you for asking it to me. Um, when we think about, uh, so during World War II, when there's conscription and, um, you know, I, I imagine and what I've seen in the archives is true, people are reading about World War II all the time. And the way that Americans and British and Australians think about um, masculinity, about heroism, it's all about having, um, you know, it's about having a strong body and martial valor and physical conditioning and demonstrations of prowess right? Um, Fighting a heroic war. This is, I think, what many people uh, wanted to experience when they went into the war. But captivity is characterized by the absence of combat, right? Um, And so that for these these soldiers who who were held captive, um, they they didn't have the experience to fight a heroic war. Instead, they are creating weight tables to record their shrinking bodies, to mend their gradually tottering clothes, and they're brooding about everyday humiliations at the hands of Japanese men. You know, some of this is about cultural um, differences, right? That uh, one thing that allied POWs experience as very troubling, at least as I've read about it in their diaries, right, is um, having to bow to Japanese soldiers, right? This is like part of Japanese culture, but this is very strange for an American, I would imagine, or for an Australian or for a British person. Hmm. 
You also tell us about how one of the things the Japanese did was to try to break down the hierarchies that Allied prisoners would try to create. I mean, uh, even as prisoners, they would still have officers who would try to exert some sort of leadership over the rest of the men, but the Japanese would make a point of treating officers with no more uh, deference than they would any of the other prisoners trying to break down that sense of hierarchy and order uh, that the prisoners would be uh, so desperate to to try to create. Uh, in some respects, this is uh, w- one of the themes of your your book. You write, in this book, I argue that there was nothing inherent to Japanese character or culture that led to the inhumane treatment of POWs. Uh, I think you ascribe that more to the chaos and difficulty of war and the, the Japanese ill-preparedness to handle such a huge number of prisoners. In other words, much of the suffering that was inflicted on, on prisoners uh, was due to, in a sense, inattentiveness, or it was unwitting cruelty. Uh, what was it like to, in a sense, come to that understanding and then trying to decide how best to make that important point? Well, it was really surprising for me, right, because I went into this not knowing um, what I'd find. Um, but I, it, it came, I came to realize that we think of war crimes as being intentionalist, being committed by evil people. But some of the worst experiences come about through poor planning, and um, it's disturbing that in this case the leadership just didn't care. Uh, one of the challenges I've had with this book is to, or I expect to find, is that, uh, you know, is, is really ex- not, not being an apologist for the Japanese in some sense, and to explain how really what I'm trying to do is explain um, why this happened, and to give a fuller picture of the different experiences that happened to different Allied POWs, sometimes even to the same person who would start in the Philippines and then travel in um what we know as a hell ship, because the conditions were so appalling, end up in Fukuoka, which is a city in um, southwest Japan, and then land in Korea, where the conditions were, for the most part, much better, right? So for the same person, experienced so many different um, things. And if they if they met, they may made a fellow soldier or serviceman in um, the same camp who had an entirely different experience. I mean, as you said earlier, talking about how the Japanese sought to break down uh, these the hierarchies of officers. Some of the camps were just for officers. So instead of having a unit of soldiers, you might have a British officer, an Australian officer, a Dutch officer, all in the same place. Hmm. And, uh, and, of course, it's really important uh, when we understand that sometimes terrible things do not emerge from unadulterated evil. And there is something, in a sense, kind of simplistic and almost comforting when we can ascribe uh, such suffering to, well, it, this was done by, by people who were evil through and through. And uh, you are suggesting that uh, this did not spring out of evil, or at least that is not a full or complete explanation uh, for what, uh, what, what these prisoners uh, experienced. I, I appreciate you having the courage uh, to take on such a complicated and, and often, I'm sure, difficult topic uh, and for writing about it uh, so thoroughly in your book. Again, titled Prisoners of the Empire Inside Japanese POW Camps, published by Harvard University Press, the author Sarah Kovner. 
Sarah Kovner, thank you so much for writing this important book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Thank you for having me.